Well, tonight we are, uh, we're in Psalm 58, and I'm hoping, uh, hoping we can get through Psalm 59 as well. There's a lot here, um, and we're going to dig deep, but we'll dig quickly, all right? So um, Psalm 58, if you want to turn there, um, uh, let me do this. Um, put, turn to Psalm 58, put your finger there or a marker because we're going we're gonna to major be in Psalm 58. But I'd like to start um, in Romans chapter 2. And I, I, I'd like to uh, uh, invite you to turn there as well. Um, this, this Psalm 58 is, uh, is a psalm that is a prayer that God would punish the wicked. And on the face of it, it seems like, oh my goodness, this is, this is uh, pretty, pretty radical and, and kind of wondered, is this, this, is this merciless? Is this unmitigated judgment that, that David is praying for? Um, it's, it's kind of hard to swallow at, at first glance. But the truth is that um, since Adam and Eve all the way to the present, there has been sin in the world. And in a very real way, we can say that sin is rebellion against God. And that that is a fact of uh, our history. And the, the, the reality is as well that rebellion against God breeds or leads to destruction. And that is where David is taking us uh, in this. It's interesting that the, the Bible um, is pretty straightforward and honest about sin and its consequences. One of the things that contrasts the word of God, however, is culture, whether it's ancient culture or modern culture. Because what we see in, in our, the culture around us is that uh, typically we hear the idea that, hey, you can do whatever you want to. And you can do it without consequence. And so we end up uh, in this place. Well, think about it right now. Even now, we are in this place in our culture right now where we're having this raging debate about whether or not it's good and legal and appropriate that we should have the freedom to kill children. Now, when you frame it in those words, it's kind of shocking, right? And yet that's indeed what we're talking about in our culture right now. That's the, that's the stream that, of, of the way the world deals with sin, 
And the Bible is very straightforward about the fact that there are consequences for sin. Um, let's, let's go to Romans chapter 5 real quick. And I'd like to, to um, just underscore for us quickly that what we're going to be reading tonight is, um, it, again, it may feel, it may seem a bit jarring, but the Apostle Paul is very straightforward as well, that judgment is coming for everyone without partiality. Let's begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Romans. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law unto themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternate, alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. There is no partiality with God. In other words, those who do evil will experience the consequences of that. Now, the, the question has to be asked then, okay, well, wait a second. Then if there's no partiality with God, who's going to heaven? Because the scripture is also pretty clear that we've all sinned, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How then are we justified? It's, it's not according to the law here, is what, what Paul is saying. It's according to the doing of the law. Now, all of us can't say that we have, we have obeyed the law of God adequately, right? None of us can say that truthfully. But what we can say is that Jesus has paid our debt. In other words, the wages of sin, according to the scripture again, is death. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus has paid our debt for us. Now, we are going to talk a little bit later about uh, the the doctrine of original sin. And because we, we hold that 
all men have sinned. In fact, Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5 to discuss the fact that, that uh, uh, since Adam, or because Adam sinned, all have sinned. But because of that truth, we can say, but Jesus died for all. Just as Adam set forth this, this forest fire of, of guilt for all humanity, Jesus provides the atonement or the quelling of that fire, if you will, the covering of that fire for all humanity as well, for those who come under his covering. Now, we're going we're gonna to unpack that a little bit later. Um, What's absent in, in Psalm 58 is grace. And we come under the blood of Christ by virtue of the grace of God. We come under the payment of the atonement by virtue of the grace of God. We will not see that in Psalm 58. Let's turn back there. God's judgment is both severe and it's sweet. It's severe because it, it delivers indeed the very consequence that the scripture declares, death. But it's sweet in that even though it cost the Son of God the, the cross an honest in, and an honest encount with our own evil, it is sweet because God's forgiveness is then imparted to us through the sacrifice of of Jesus himself. Um, in light of the cross, we have to add one thing. All that, we, all that we as sinners deserve, which is so vividly be, uh, portrayed in Psalm 58, is laid upon Jesus. It is paid for in Christ. It causes us grief as it should, but it also causes us to uh, have a sense of urgency to share that good news that Jesus has paid the cost with others who don't know that. So let's, let's go to Psalm 58. Here we have an indictment of the wicked. Let's read verses uh, one and two together. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? Those are rhetorical questions because the answer is right here. No. Verse 2. In your heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. Yes. O gods. That word gods there. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, do any of you have a different rendering in the scripture in, your, in the version? Oh, congregation. Okay. That's an interesting one. Okay. Um, the Hebrew word there is, is um, ones that it, it's elem, which, which means uh, God, or uh, it originally means God's little g. But there are those who... Uh, have, have thought that perhaps it, it would be translated elim, which means silent ones. 
And it's, it's interesting because in Habakkuk 2, we read um, the, these words. What prophet is an idol when it, its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake or to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath inside of it. In other words, it's not alive. This idol is a, is a silent one. It doesn't speak forth. It's, it, it's not alive. And indeed, what, what uh, David is writing here is this thought that uh, asking, do you speak righteousness, you idols, you gods, you idols? And he answers rhetorically, obviously, no, because there's no breath inside of you. Um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, uh, speaks of this challenge in the New Testament church of eating meat offered to idols. And in that context, he says, an idol is nothing. It really is nothing. And therefore, he gives freedom to those whose consciences will allow them to Eat meat that's been offered to idols because an idol is nothing. But for those whose conscience is is bothered by that, he says, don't violate your conscience. Um, he, He says also in that context that in the offering of meat to idols, he likens that to offering meat to demons. Because indeed, an idol represents a a demonic power. And yet, in truth, it's nothing but wood or stone or whatever. It doesn't have any breath in it. Now, he says, do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? The word uprightly uh, uh, speaks of evenness. Or if you think about it, what is a good Uh, symbol of justice. You see it in our courtrooms here in our country, a symbol of justice that has something to do with evenness or balance, right? And that's that's what this word uprightness is. Um, Do you do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? Are you are you Are you fair? Are you balanced in your justice? And he says, no. And in truth, you have to look at the reality of most of us don't judge fairly. We're all biased, right? And and, uh, so the picture of humanity here is not a very good one. He goes on, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like a venom of a serpent and like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or skillful skillful casters of spells. Um, Here we see uh, the evidence. This is the evidence of the indictment that 
that David has just rendered in verses one and two. The focus, again, is on the wicked here. It is on the wicked, not on the gods or the idols. He says they're estranged. They are estranged from birth, foreigners. Um, and again, that idea is, is that uh, they don't belong. They're they're. They're estranged, set apart, away from um, God's, God's plan, God's rule, God's law, even from birth. Um, these who speak lies go astray from birth. Now, how can that be? How can that be? Well, again, I spoke of it earlier. We are talking here about the doctrine of original sin. How many have heard of that before? Okay, a few of us. Yeah, the doctrine of original sin is something that is indeed rooted in the scripture. And we read about it in Romans chapter five, verse 12 there in Romans five, Paul writes, therefore, just as though through one man sin entered the world, that would be Adam, right? And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, it's important to understand that the doctrine of original sin is necessary if we are to believe that Christ died for all. If Christ died for all, once for all, it's necessary that we believe that all are sinners. Um, Romans 8, 5, verses 8 through 10. Again, if you want to turn there, I invite you to do that. Um, 5, 8, 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's go on. Verse 15, the second half of it. For by if the transgression of the one man, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And going on in verse 18, so then as though as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, capital O, that is Jesus, the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So even here in the Old Testament, we see the unpacking of this doctrine of original sin. And again, 
let me say that if we are to believe that Christ died once for all, it implies that we must then also believe that all have sinned. Now, uh, again, this is, this is very contrary to what we hear in our culture. What we hear in our culture is that everybody's really good at heart, right? And out of the goodness of, of everyone, there should be the opportunity for peace and love and, and getting along with one another. Surely that's the case, right? And in fact, we even hear that mantra in the, in the context of justifying perversion. And I have to say that, that, again, that may be a popular idea because it, it tickles our fancy. It says, hey, you're really good at heart, Sally. You're really good at heart. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you don't believe it because it's not true. And, and the, truth, the truth is, no, we're not good at heart. All have sinned. We are all sinners. That's the big contrast here, again, between what the scripture says and what our culture says. Um, let's go back to uh, uh, Psalm 58, verse 4. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent. A venom is poison, right? And a, and a snake bite, when you get a snake bite, what happens? Is it um, does the does the snake bite just hurt where the bite happened? No, it hurts all around it, and sometimes through every single joint in your body. Um, I, I, you may have heard me say this before. We have a uh, had a dog, bless her heart. Um, she passed away last Friday, but not because of this. When she was much younger, she was bitten by a rattlesnake, nailed right between the eyes. And, and, um, and of course, guess why? Because she was right in there getting at, after that snake. And bang, the, the, the uh, snake bit her. Well, um, how did we know that she was bit by a rattlesnake? Did we see the bite? This was a really hairy dog. She was a, uh, a black golden retriever, if, if that makes sense to you. And we, we could see no bite. She was very hairy. But what we could see was the effect of the venom. Her neck swelled up. Her entire chest swelled up. She looked like, seriously, she looked like a cow. Um, and, and, so we know that venom is something that infects the rest of the body. Uh, it's not just limited to that, that little bite space. Um, it's interesting that um, there is... Uh, what, does, what, what does they in verse 4 refer to? Look at verse 3. The very phrase right before verse 4. 
these who speak lies, right? And then he says, they have venom like venom of a serpent. Uh, what's the effect of a lie? <laughs> it spreads way beyond the little, little uh, few words that are spoken, right? It, it exceeds that limit very quickly, not only in the life of the liar, but in the life of the victim of the lie. And even the community in which the victim of the liar lives. And so, so we see that uh, this venom is something that uh, is connected with lying, with untruthfulness. Um, now he goes on to say, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear. Um, <laughs> doesn't hear the, the, it doesn't hear the charmer. Wickedness unrestrained, will not respond, will not respond to correction. Wickedness that is unrestrained will not respond to truth. A lie that is running rampant will not respond to truth. I've experienced that personally, even very recently. People who have their mind made up on something that they've determined to be true, even though it's not, will not hear the truth. I have a friend who, who uh, uh, went through a, 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 a very heart-wrenching experience in which people leveled charges against him that were not based in fact. He ended up losing his job, his career as a result because people chose to believe the lie rather than the truth. And in, in a very real way, that's what the psalmist is saying. That's the effect of a lie. It has this deafening effect on those who are caught up in it. Verse, verse six, O God shattered their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which, which melts away as it goes along. Like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away in a whirlwind. The green and the burning alike. This speaks of God's divine judgment. Um, six through eight is a prayer. Basically saying, God, let them be ineffective. Let these liars, let these evil persons, let the wicked be ineffective and of no consequence. And verse, verse uh, nine is the confidence of God's judgment before your pots can feel the fire. In other words, God's judgment will come in in less time than it takes to kindle a fire, to boil water. God's judgment will indeed come. He will sweep away like a whirlwind that blows the dust and debris around. 
he will sweep away. And the green and the burning alike. Um, it's interesting that, that here he says that kindling, whether it's green or if it's burning, it doesn't matter. God is going to wipe it away. That is the assurance of God's judgment. Now, verse 10 um, begins to turn the corner and begins to show us the divine resolution. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Um, the righteous. Who are the righteous? Are we the righteous? Oh, yeah. The doctrine of original sin says that we're sinners, right? Hmm. But Romans 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, that's what Romans 3.23 says. But the righteous are those who have been redeemed. That's who the righteous are. And how are we redeemed? We're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Psalm 57 verse 3 says, He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. Selah. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. The psalmist says in Psalm 58, only God is able. Only God is worthy to deliver vengeance. It's one thing to say only God is able. Surely we're not able to do that. It's another thing to say that only God is worthy to do that because he alone is righteous in and of himself. Romans 12, Apostle Paul says, never take your, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become over be, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance belongs to God. Only he is worthy to impart it. I think some of us, um, some of us uh, operate with the idea that somehow we might be worthy to deliver vengeance. No, we're not. Um, I've recently heard it said, I wouldn't, be wanna, I wouldn't wanna be standing next to him when God gets his vengeance going. As if we're totally immune. Um, well, we could say that we are immune. Unfortunately, those who, who spoke those words were speaking of yet other believers. 
as if to say God's judgment will be marked out upon another believer, but not upon me. We're both believers and we're all under the blood of the lamb. And that is our only hope. Thank God for that hope. Amen. Verse 11, their reward is not the destruction of the wicked, but the vindication of God. I love that. Our reward, the, the word reward simply means it's, it's the fruit. It's the fruit. And the fruit of righteousness is that others will see and say, surely there is a God who judges the earth. God gets the glory, not the righteous. God gets the glory. Now, we got 15 minutes. Actually, we have 13 minutes to get through Psalm 59. There's a lot to get through here. And I'm, I'll, do myself, I'll do my best to, to press through it. And this is a prayer for um, a deliverance from enemies. It's, um, again, it's a, uh, a psalm that has context. The context is, is uh, Psalm, excuse me, uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 19. And if we look at chapter 17, we see David slaying Goliath. If we look at chapter 18, we see the women singing the praises of David. Hey, David has, or, or Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. And Saul gets jealous, right? And he sets in his heart to pursue David. And there's a bunch of stuff that happens in the end of that chapter. We see that um, David or Saul has sent messengers to David's house to watch for him in order to kill him. And at that time, uh, David has been given Michael as his wife, who is Saul's daughter. His daughter, Michael, tells David, you better get out of here if you want to get out with your life. And, and she deceives her, her father, Saul. And David flees. It's interesting. He flees to uh, Ramah. And uh, that's where Samuel is. We read about that experience and the grief that uh, David experienced through that previously in the last several weeks, uh, looking at, uh, I believe it was Psalm 56. And, and so, um, um, the, excuse me, Psalm, Psalm 55, 54, 55, one of those. Anyway, um, bottom line, this, it, this Psalm is in the context of these men being sent to lie and wait for David. And this is David's psalm in response. Um, he reads in this cry for deliverance, deliver me from my enemies, O God, set me securely on high away from those uh, 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 who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from the men of bloodshed. Um, this is, again, a plea for God's dramatic work to pluck David out of his circumstances just in time. 
and his enemies are those who rise up against him. He, he asks the Lord to set him securely on high in that place of safety, in that place of safety away from those who would do him harm, those who do iniquity. The trouble or wickedness or sorrow is, is, is connected with the word iniquity. And it's interesting, in the, in the uh, very root of that word, we see to the, the idea of uh, to pant, or like, like a dog pants, right? When does a human pant? When they are really exerting themselves, right? <gasps> <sighs> and so it has this contents of exerting yourself um, usually in vain to come to naught. In other words, running so hard, but not getting away. And that's this idea of iniquity. It's wrapped up in vanity. It's, it's uh, working hard and promoting yourself, but not not getting the results you need. Iniquity we call sin, right? And I know it's a little elementary, but what's in the middle of sin? Come on. I. I. Yeah. I. At the root of sin is vanity, is I. I'm in the middle of it. Um. Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. And there we see the tie between that word iniquity and boasting and pride. Back in 59, we, we hear David saying, save me. The word is yasa. And do you remember when Jesus rode into to Jerusalem Hosanna means save now. It comes from this root, yasa. It means uh, to, to uh, indeed to save, to deliver. Uh, it's really interesting because in its, in its most root form, it means to be wide open, to be free. <laughs> There's safety in being set free. Amen? In other words, in, the, in sin, we are enchained. We are enslaved in sin. Jesus, or, uh, David says, save me. Um, I, have a, uh, I have a t-shirt at home that on the back of it, it has the, the words of Psalm 28, verse 3. And there is this, uh, this guy riding, uh, riding a bull. It's a, it's a, uh, what is it? Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a Brahma bull, but it's a, it's a cowboy up. You ever heard of that group? Cowboy up? Well, it's a, it's a Christian cowboy group and cowboy up means, hey, we're going up, right? And it, and it, and the phrase is this, Psalm 28, three, do not drag me away with the wicked, <laughs> and, and the rest of that verse is, and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors while evil is in their heart. Iniquity is wrapped up with deceit. Verse three and four, we see the crisis. 
For, for behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. Not for my guilt, not guilt of mine. They run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. They've set an ambush. They lie in wait um, for his life, his very vitality, his breathing. We sang this song. It's your breath in my lungs. It's your vitality, God. It's indeed, that's what it means to be alive. And that's what the word for my life means. His very vitality. Fierce men who are harsh and greedy, power hungry. They launch an attack. Um, They set themselves against me unjustly. Unjustly and without a cause. And they run. They run. In other words, they're eager. They're eager to get into the fray. And they set themselves against me. That word to set against is the idea of to stand perpendicular. What does, the, what does perpendicular mean? If this is the line, perpendicular is this, right? Or this, it's directly opposed to it. That's what, what this uh, means, that they are set against me. Um, and then he says, arouse, arouse yourself, O God. Huh, arouse yourself. Psalm 7, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Psalm 35, verse 23. Stir yourself. Stir stir up yourself, O God, and awake to my right and to my cause, my God and my Lord. Verse 5, we see a cry for judgment. You, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of armies. Who is the God of Israel? Yahweh. Yahweh. There is none like him. He is the unspeakable, the one who cannot be contained. That is the God of Israel. Now he says, awake. Is God asleep? No. Psalm 121 that whole psalm, very short, only six verses. But the, at the heart of it, verse three, he says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God's awake all the time. So, so what is David saying? What's going on? Um, awake? Well, he's saying the same thing. Arouse, stir yourself up, God. Get busy, and be involved in bringing judgment upon these who are my enemies. Now, um, it's, he, he's speaking here of uh, punishment. Punish all the nations. What's the punishment for sin? Death. Death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin 
is death. <laughs> but what's the rest of that verse? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God for that. Amen? Do not be gracious, he says. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous, treacherous in iniquity. Seriously, David? Yeah, he's serious. Those who are treacherous are those who deal deceitfully. You see, the word treacherous means to cover. Those who deal deceitfully seek to cover. David doesn't want merely his own problems resolved. He wants evil destroyed and God's justice to be fully vindicated. This means all of the wicked transgressors will be judged, not receiving any mercy. David wants final punitive adjust, uh, judgment. And judgment will come. Now, we're not going to finish this. So much for that. I'll tell you what, we've got a running start into next week. Uh, I, I will, uh, we'll pick up Psalm 59. No, not next week, two weeks from now. Guess what's happening next week? VBS is going on. And so we will not have our Wednesday night service as normal, but we will uh, assemble the, the following week and uh, we'll, we'll dig in and finish Psalm 59. In fact, we may start over just to get a running jump into it. Um, I'm sorry we didn't finish that. Too much to dig into, right? Um, let's, <laughs> let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for um, what we've learned tonight. We, we thank you that you're serious about sin. But we thank you also, Lord, as those of you who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that you are equally serious about forgiveness. So much so that you paid the price for our sin. You took the consequences of it upon yourself. And Lord, in light of that, we... Um, our response seriously cannot be anything other than complete abandonment to you in thanksgiving. Just like the apostles, Paul says that we should offer our lives as a living sacrifice because it's the only reasonable thing to do in response to your marvelous grace. We thank you, Lord, again, that yes, you are serious about sin, so much so that no one, no one will escape punishment apart from those who receive the gift of your grace. Lord, I pray that that would move each of us with greater and deeper unction to share the good news of your mercy, of your grace, of your great provision in the life and the death of Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.